theyeshiva.net. At risk. This is our subject tonight. Agutavach. Welcome to everybody joining Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's weekly Motsai Shabbos radio show from 10 to 11 p.m. I want to ask you a question. Who is the most famous kid at risk in Jewish history? Yes. Who is the most famous Jewish child who can be defined as a kid at risk? Maybe some of you have the answer. The lines are open. The emails are open. We're going to discuss a very loaded and sensitive topic tonight, Kids at Risk. You can email your questions and remarks to rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. That's rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. We're going to have also a special guest tonight on the subject a little later in the show. You can also call in 845-354-2444. We will soon go to the emails and to the telephone lines, my dear friends. So, as always, I want to begin with a little thought that will get us into the issue. And that is is this. You know, I want to ask you a question, and that is, well, we're still going to come back to our first question, but maybe one of you can email or call in with the most famous Jewish kid at risk, and we're going to get back to that later. So what was the genesis of Jewish exile and subjugation? What was the beginning of Gullus? The first Gullus was Gullus Mitzrayim, the Egyptian exile. How did it all begin? And you all know the answer. Yosef Atzadik Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He ended up in Egypt, and ultimately that caused his father and the entire family to relocate from the Holy Land into Egypt, following which the Egyptian exile began. But how was Yosef sold to Egypt? What were the circumstances? And of course, he was thrown into a pit, and his brothers took him out of the pit when they saw merchants traveling to Egypt, and they sold their little brother Yosef. But what were the circumstances? Why was he thrown into the pit? So if you open up a Torah Parshas Vayeshev, it says, Reuven, the oldest brother, felt responsible when he saw that his brothers want to kill Yosef. And he decided to convince them to throw him into a pit. He said, let's not kill him, let's just throw him into a pit. What was his intention? Later he would come back, retrieve him from 
the pit and return him to his father. And then when they throw him into the pit, the brothers sit down to eat bread, and they sell him in the process. Reuven comes back. Where was he during the sale? So Rashi says they were eating, and Reuven couldn't eat. Why couldn't he eat? And one of the reasons is because he was fasting. Why was he fasting? Because he was engaged in repentance and introspection. Why? And the reason is because almost a decade earlier, he has interfered in the intimate life of his father. He moved beds, and he was fasting and repenting for what he has done in the sense that he took his father's bed out of... um, out of after after his mother passed away after after Rachel passed away after Rachel passed away so Yaakov's bed was placed in Billah's tent and he felt it's an insult to his mother Leah who suffered so much and he interfered into Yaakov's intimate life and therefore he was fasting and repenting for a sin he has committed nine years earlier and therefore he was not there when Yosef was sold what is the deep lesson of this story, my dear friends? The genesis of exile is not necessarily bad people doing bad things. Golos sometimes begins from the fact that holy people, great human beings, spiritual sensitive souls are busy repenting, perfecting themselves, growing spiritually while a child lay in the abyss. How can you go off and spend time fasting and repenting and focusing on your own perfection when there's a Jewish child languishing in a pit, in the abyss? There are many types of pits. There are physical pits, but there are psychological, mental, and emotional pits. And the beginning of exile is when I am capable of ignoring the child in the pit and going off to work on myself. The beginning of redemption is when that consciousness changes. Well, friends, there are many youngsters today in a pit, in the abyss. This has not been always spoken about it. The last 20 years, since around 1995, around 20 years ago, the issue has come to the fore more and more. And now it's spoken about much more because people see the reality. People see what's going on. And tonight we want to discuss, take your questions, discuss it. I have to say at the onset, I am not a psychologist. I am not a psychiatrist. I am not a doctor. I am not an addiction specialist. I am not a counselor and I am not a certified social worker. We're here to discuss, to explore, and to share. So let me go to the emails. And um, you can email rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. The telephone lines are open. You can call 845 354 2444 845-354-2444 or rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. I see a few emails came in and I'm going to start taking questions. A few emails already came in before Shabbos from, um, from the email we sent out about the radio show. So let's, let's go ahead. Here is a question, a question that comes from Israel. My name is Binyamin. I live in Israel. I see Americans and Israelis and many Americans that made Aliyah to Israel, teenagers who are at risk from all three different groups, Israelis, Americans, and Americans who moved to Israel. I think there are many differences in all of these groups, but I see that they have one thing in common. They are victims of abuse, molestation, molestation, etc. Judaism for them is torture, Every single day. All they hear is prohibitions against internet, army. Nobody is really addressing this problem. What is your opinion? Thank you, Binyamin, for bringing this up. Uh, you're touching on a very, uh, a very serious issue, and I think there's something very important to understand here. And that is that uh, abuse is a major, major cause of ki- most kids at risk. Um, uh, I have uh, I have spoken to many uh, activists and professionals who deal with this uh, extremely often, and they have told me that eighty uh, percent, or some say ninety percent, of kids at risk have at some point been victims of serious trauma. Most 
sexual trauma, sexual abuse. And this is the source of their emotional and spiritual breakdown. I remember I was once sitting at a meeting that was convened in Flatbush in Brooklyn, New York, by many activists. You had there from Agude, you had from Toro Masora, you had from other schools, from other organizations, people who have different homes and different institutions to help teens at risk. Maybe around 15 people were sitting, all heavily involved, some of them for many years. And at some point, I turned to them, I turned to a few of them, and I said, you have seen two, three hundred children. You have seen five hundred children. You have dealt with a thousand children as a psychiatrist or as a social worker, as a counselor, as a mentor, as a rabbi, whatever it is, a rabbi. So tell me, how much there was somebody sitting there? I remember somebody sitting there who had a home. He, he made a special home for these kids, and he's seen hundreds of kids over years. I said, how much percent of these children who are at risk, who have abandoned their families, have left their homes, many of them have become addicted to destructive substances, uh, have abandoned Judaism and so forth, how many of them have been molested, sexually molested? I have to tell you, I was shocked. One of them said 95% of the kids he knew. The other one said 90%. And somebody said he thinks it's more like 85%. And then one more said 99%. Now, this is not a professional scientific statistic. It could be somewhat exaggerated. But we're dealing here with major numbers. Generally speaking, many children who have been abused and experienced trauma as youngsters, they hold it in for many years and then it explodes and they can't function as ordinary human beings. The pain is so devastating. And that's why the issue, although it's not our issue tonight, but the issue of molestation and abuse is one of the most important issues that have to be discussed today. Because people who don't know, don't know. Thank God, may they never know. The damage that this can do to innocent and beautiful souls is exceptionally painful and profound. Now, it's not only sexual abuse, but the fact is that a significant majority, I would say it's very fair and accurate to say 80% of teens at risk are victims of trauma. Most of them sexual trauma, but there's other kinds of severe emotional trauma or psychological disorder. For example, physical abuse, verbal abuse. Verbal abuse is very serious. Learning disabilities. A child who goes through the system of schools and yeshivas for 10, 15, 20 years and can't succeed. He can't succeed. He, wasn't, he or she was not given the tools and the resources, the academic tools, the professional tools, or the social skills, whatever, to be able to succeed. This is a very painful situation. Then you have depression, you have anxiety, you have OCD, you have BPD, you have bipolar, you have other forms of mental illness, you have severe fighting at home. Child who grows up at a home where there's terrible fighting, hollering, insults, uh, animosity, hatred. That's a form of abuse. You have a dysfunctional family, you have a parent who has a very serious struggle, a very serious illness. These are children who grow up in very difficult situations. And the first thing we have to know is we must be attentive. We have to be very sensitive and we have to be attuned to what is going on in these, uh, in these people's lives. There are kids who have abandoned Judaism and many of their lives are at risk. And um, they, have, they have serious learning disabilities or ADD or ADHD or ODD or all the good words that we know about. And there's no doubt that it's a significant trauma to try to make it through our beautiful yet often rigid school system with any of these challenges and any of these uh, setbacks. Now, the most important thing is always preventive medicine. All of us listening and all of us who have influence, we must do everything that we can to be able to address this early on in our children's life. The best thing is to prevent it. Parents, children, schools, principals, rabbis, teachers, educators must be educated about the results of abuse. We should be sick and tired of having to deal only with the damaging effects afterwards. Of course we have to do it. But there's a new generation growing up. Let's make sure that every single child is saved, that every single child is protected, that children shouldn't have to endure so much pain and so much suffering.
Let's go on to the next email. You can li- you can email with your live questions and remarks. Uh, RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com. RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com. Or 845-354-2444. That's 845-354-2444. We're going to go to the emails. Are there, uh, or we'll go to another email here. And uh, let's see what's going on here. Okay. Hi, my name is Sam. I am unmarried and unhappy. (laughs) Okay. I grew up in a rough home with no proper parenting. Lots of strife between my parents. I have anxiety and panic attacks. It's like my life became one big stagnation. I have no motivation to get married. I also have an unfulfilling job. Can I please have advice on how to reboot my life? I Gewalt Shimon, Gewalt. First of all, thank you, thank you, Shimon, thank you, Sam, for sharing and sharing uh, candidly. We appreciate it. Listen, the first thing I want to tell you is I'm so sorry to hear about uh, the difficulties that you encountered growing up. It's certainly, it's certainly not easy growing up in a rough home that's dysfunctional with with parents who are who you don't feel are present. And, and, and lots of strife and lots of fighting and, uh, and the consequences are sometimes very profound. But I want to tell you, Sam, the fact that you are aware of this and the fact that you're ready to confront it is a tremendous thing because the genesis of all healing is awareness and the gelling, gel, genesis of all healing is honest conversations about it pushing it over the rug, repressing it, and using different substances to numb your pain, which you could easily do. That is the beginning of the greatest tragedy because the the darkness becomes shrouded in darkness. You know, the greatest tragedy is when we don't know about the darkness, when the darkness becomes light, when we're not aware of how painful we are. The fact that you're so aware of it, my dear friend Sam, this is a great blessing. A few... You know, obviously, a little conversation on a radio show, a small, a short conversation on a radio show can't really address it. But, but here are a few things I want to suggest. Number one, I don't know if you have contact, but there's many people who can help you. Find somebody who's an expert in this area, a professional, a therapist, a psychologist, a good rabbi, a mentor, somebody who you could speak to on a weekly basis, maybe a few times a week. And, and and really somebody or a few people who can help you deal with it. There's a lot of resources that can help you deal with it. But I think you need to communicate to somebody, somebody who could listen to you and somebody who can empathize with you and somebody who can who can challenge you. Deep down, deep down, I'm sure you have great motivation to live. You're a beautiful person and every soul wants to live and wants to succeed. But there may be a lot of fear. There may be a lot of pain. And you need to get it out of your system. So I want to encourage you, first of all, to speak to somebody. Number two, speak to God. Speak to God. Your creator, somebody who created you, who molded you, who believes in you and loves you unconditionally. Speak to God. Learn, learn, learn how to pray. I would say something else. Take care of yourself. Eat well. Exercise. Nurture yourself. Build yourself up. You know, And, and get involved Get involved in some form of activity where you give something. You have talents. You have resources. I could recognize it from your email. You have in you give, give. And by giving, you will be able to see more of the beauty in yourself. And, and please keep in touch um, if, I could, uh, if I could be of further assistance to you. Let's go to the telephone calls. We have uh, Menachem calling from upstate New York. Menachem, are you here? Go ahead. I would like to discuss a topic which is not often discussed, the, the topic of of the derech. Yes. Why are preserving Jews leave Edeskite? How to respond to this challenge? Now, um, you know, you, you, you spoke about it. You spoke about this concept many times, um, but but what to do about it? This is a this is a problem that is growing in the shadow of every single community, and unfortunately, we see and we meet people. I personally meet people that 
are no more on the derech and waiting for the opportunity to leave fully, physically. Right. They're already off spiritually, and now they're waiting for the opportunity to be able to leave with their family or without a family, physically. Right. How do we respond to this challenge? Okay, it's 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 a critical and vital vital question, Menachem, that you're bringing up. Um, let me address a few points. I think there's a very important distinction to make of different factors involved, and sometimes people do not realize this. Many, many of the youth who abandon Judaism completely and go to the other extreme are doing it completely as a result of tremendous pain. We often look at them and we say, oh, oh, these are bad kids. These are rotten apples. Why would they want to aggravate their parents so badly? But the truth is, a not all of them, but a very large majority of what we call today teens at risk or of the derech who really abandon everything they have grown up with or at least a lot of what they've grown up with, and some of them go not just away but they go to other extremes I could tell you from personal experience and from conversations with many professionals in this field that I have had over the years who say unequivocally that a very large majority of them are simply acting out of terrible pain they feel like losers. They feel hopeless. They feel their lives have no meaning. And they're doing anything to be able to sustain themselves in some way that gives them at least a delusional sense of comfort or happiness. And I think the reason we have to understand it is because if we don't address the cause and we don't understand what these kids are going through, there's not even a hope that we can get them back to their families and get them back, uh, get them back to Yiddishkeit. I'm going to tell you a little story. And the story I heard, I know it from the person himself. I spent a whole day, a seminar, with my dear friend um, Avi Fischoff, who in 2003 opened up what's called Home Sweet Home for children between, for youngsters between 16 and 21 who were, as you say, off the derech, who've left their homes and left Judaism and left their religion and so on and so forth. And he did a whole day seminar. I met there dozens of parents, uh, rabbis, educators, uh, some therapists. It was eye-opening and it was fascinating. Here's a story, a 19-year-old boy, Moshe, he begins to self-destruct he goes off the deep end. He leaves Judaism from a brilliant yeshiva boy. He becomes completely, leaves Yiddishkeit. He's staying up all night, sleeping all day. After two years of living in purgatory, his parents come to meet uh, Avi, uh, Avi Fischoff, who deals with this constant, continuously. And by the way, is a great resource and has helped many, many families and many, many teenagers. And is a good friend, and I say this objectively. At this point, the parents had no relationship with him. He would come home, he would lock himself up in the room all the time. He was completely disconnected from Judaism, from his family, from everybody. Um, uh, and the parents decided to take an approach which uh, Avi developed, known as twisted parenting, which basically focuses on developing very close relationships with each one of these children, not rebuking them or arguing with them or trying to fix them, but acknowledging that they have been broken because most of them have been through trauma in their life, especially abuse or molestation, and therefore there's no hope even in beginning to help them reclaim a healthy life without showing them that you're there for them, that you care for them, you can embrace them, and you go down into the abyss with them. And this is what they did. One night, Moishi's mother hears noise downstairs in the middle of the night. She goes downstairs and she sees her son, Moishi, very distraught. She asks him what's wrong. He tells her he's not been sleeping properly for the past three nights. He has bad dreams. She makes him a sleepy time tea. She sits and talks with him. Now they already have a good relationship because she's on this path of twisted parenting. She calms him down after an hour. After half an hour, she goes to bed. She takes him to his bed. She tucks him in with a hug and a kiss. She goes to sleep. She was so tired, she immediately falls asleep. She wakes up in the morning. Her son is sleeping next to her in her bed. He's 22 years old. He's six feet tall. 
He's 250 pounds, but he's a baby who needs to climb into his mother's bed to feel calm and secure enough to fall asleep. I want to tell everybody, a child who more or less had a functional upbringing and a wholesome and happy life will rarely go to the other extreme to the point of abandoning his parents and his family and his close friends and his community. It's usually as a result of trauma. This is one major issue. Then you have, however, you have many other situations of people who leave Judaism, and it's not as a result of trauma. This could be a combination of many things. And I'll tell you from the research that has been done, again, I can't call this scientific, but what, what I have seen over the years, I would tell you this. Take any, I'm not talking about kids who are traumatized. We're going away from that a moment. Take any community, I think it would be fair to say, okay? 20% of them, 20% of the youngsters are doing really, really great. Really great. Like Mamish, you know, wonderful, wonderful. Thank God. Another 20% are doing, are doing well. They're doing well. I'm not going to say awesome. They're doing well. So that's 40%. Another 30% are doing okay. They pass. And another 30%, and maybe in some cases 40, are struggling discreetly. As you said, a lot of them are struggling very heavily. They're not interested. They're not motivated. They don't believe. They have no place. Uh, uh, either they fake it or they don't fake it. And that's another maybe 30%, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. And this has to do with a lot of, a lot of issues. And I would just address very swiftly a few major things that I think. Number one, kids have to have somebody to talk to. They're very intelligent. They're very honest. They're very idealistic. Often when they start asking their questions, people either chastise them, especially if they don't have answers, they get upset at them because these kids are triggering questions that they have in their own hearts. You know, if you ask me a question, I don't know, and I'm not ready to address it. I start telling you, how do you ask such a horrible question? Really, I'm trying to repress my own questions. We have to be able to talk to them. We have to be able to listen to them. That's number one. Number two, we have to be able to be able to give our children an experience of Yiddishkeit and Hashem and God that is life-enhancing, that is geschmack, it's delightful. Not just preach doctrines and like just repeat old phrases and old slogans and tell them stories that happened in the past. Tamuru kitoiv Hashem. How do you convince somebody that sushi is good? How do you convince somebody that ice cream is good? Give them a taste of it. Taste the ice cream and you'll see for yourself. You'll tell me if this chocolate mousse cake is good or not. If we're not giving our youngsters an experience, an experience of godliness, of their own soul, of their own depth, of their own spiritual potentials, so then often all of Judaism becomes monotonous, irrelevant. It's not relevant to their lives. They have to see in Yiddishkeit a process, a journey that is stimulating, it's challenging, it's captivating. It, it wants to bring out the best in people. It wants to raise people to their greatest heights. And equally important, it's not there to repress them and crush them, but actually to actualize them. Moses and God did not decide to take the Jews out of Egypt in order to make them slaves to institutionalized religion. They took the Jews out of, he took the Jews out of Egypt to set them free. Free from everything, not just free from Pharaoh. Free from their own superficiality, from their own enslaving instincts, from their own addictions, from their own lower self. You have to be able to show people their higher self. Another very important idea is homes and schools have to be happy. Kids want to be in happy atmospheres. A Shabbos table. Let it be happy. Have fun with your children. Create good relationships with your children. Parents have to be able to connect to their children in a deep way. Children should feel that this home is a place where we celebrate life. If you have Shabbos tables that are full of warmth and love, it's not going to be. It's not going to be easy for them to uh, to 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 abandon that easily, and I think these are some of the major points. Uh, some of the major points uh, uh, that have to be addressed, and a major issue is honesty. 
honest conversations. A lot of kids feel that there's so much corruption and everything is just talk, talk, talk. And nobody really is, is, is authentic and honest. And they need, authentic, they need authentic people in their lives. Kids today are spiritually very, very deep and very, very sensitive. If we're going to sell them a Judaism that is not very deep, is not revolutionary. Kids want to change the world. Give them a Judaism that can change the world. Those are some of the thoughts I would share with you, Menachem. And we're going to take a fast break, and we're going to be right back after the break. Stay with us. We have a special guest. Okay, you're joining Rabbi YY on his weekly Mitzvah Shabbos radio show at the Nachum Siegel Network from 10 to 11 p.m. every Saturday night. And tonight we're discussing kids at risk, children at risk, interesting emails and telephones. I'm very excited. Now we have a special guest on the line, somebody who's very close to my heart on many levels. And this is my dear brother, Rabbi Baruch. Jacobson. A few weeks ago on my father's yard site, I had my other brother, Simon, on the line on the radio show, and now I have my uh, my other brother, my middle brother, Baruch, on the line. Baruch is the ambassador of Chabad at Hunter College in New York City. But for many years, the reason I asked Baruch to be on the line tonight is for many years, he has been in the trenches. And what I mean by the trenches is has been a mentor, a guide, and a sort of a counselor and friend to many teens at risk. Um, So even though Baruch does not do this uh, professionally, but he has experience from the streets. And that's why I wanted to speak to him. Baruch, agutavach. Agutavach. Thank you very much for joining uh, your baby brother on his radio show. So let me ask you. I have seen you on the porch of your home, in shuls, on streets, in pizza shops, in cafeterias, uh, schmoozing, discussing life and everything, life, death, and everything in between, with many youngsters who we could say are struggling. I don't know how many years, but many years. Tell me what you have learned over all these years from all these conversations. Well. Every child is uh, handcrafted by uh, Hashem, by our Maker. And the first thing, every child, no matter whether they're newborn or they're already uh, crawling, uh, on every, whatever, whatever level the crawling is, whether it's a child, an infant, or a teenager crawling in his own way, has uh, special gifts. And the first thing, before anything else, it's uh, welcoming that child with a smile, embracing him, listening to him, and asking him what matters to him. That's the first thing. As soon as you open the, a child's heart, 
you've already solved at least half of the challenges that face every human being. And that's even for a two-year-old, a three-year-old, before there's any major quote-unquote risks. And even afterwards, once the child already fell and, and scraped their knees, again, on whatever level that it may be, whether it's physical scrapes or emotional scrapes within, the same thing applies. Embracing the child as a gift to this world. When the child sees that you are smiling and accept them where they are, they feel much better about themselves. And it's a lot easier to uh, walk together and coach each other and so on. That's, uh, I would say, on the, at the uh, onset, the best way to summarize what I've learned over the many years that I've been involved in education. Is there ever a point, Baruch, that uh, parents should cut their relationships with their children and expel them from their homes or simply create conditions that they know will likely cause the child to say, okay, this is not for me, and basically sending your child away from the home? Is there ever a point that that should happen? I personally don't believe a child should ever be um, sent away from their home. However, I must say I'm speaking uh, as an amateur as far as this field is concerned. I'm speaking after 33 years of being a teacher and uh, 26 years of being a parent. Uh, the best way to really uh, make a decision if that's where it, it might stand is to contact a professional. It's very, very important. I've learned for myself as well. When you don't have the answer or you're not sure of the correct approach, don't undertake the task at hand. Always contact a professional. I have mentors, teachers, people that I can consult when I'm in a situation where I'm not sure the best response is. And this question, which is very extreme, uh, uh, the best way would be would to, to be consult a, a professional. And a little bit later on the program, before we close, if you could prepare uh, pens or pencils, I have an example of an organization that, that deals, that helps people with the, this type of question and with other um, sensitive issues. So a, a little bit later in the program, I will share with you an example of an organization. There are many organizations that you can do, look, look for on your own. You can ask a doctor, a therapist, a counselor, a rabbi. But I will uh, suggest one that I've worked with over the many years that, that uh, helps parents and uh, couples with uh, various uh, issues in their in their family lives. Got it. Um, let me ask you something. Ha- Baruch, what do you think is the most important thing that these kids need, teens at risk? A good example. Explain. They need to see strong uh, role models, whether it's the, the, the actual parents, if they're there, or the teachers, or the, in the community. When you walk down the street... And you see a child who's dragging his feet, and he's, uh, he's, he's not uh, motivated, he's not alive. As soon as you walk proudly and smile and say good morning, you've changed his life. The first thing, I mentioned this before as well, they need to see good examples of happy human beings. Then they say to themselves, no matter what they look like on the outside and on their behavior, there's an inside. That's what I mentioned before. Their soul is always intact. It's always special and holy. And their thoughts are special and holy. Never judge a child. So if you are a good example, you're a happy father, you come home singing, you leave all your stress, you hang it up in the hallway by the closet. We all have stress, but you leave it in the hallway. Don't bring it into the house. So the teenagers, the children in the house, this is if it's your own children. If it's not your own children, it's the same thing. If they see a happy person, if they live in a happy home, with a roof that doesn't leak, and there's food on the table, and there's a blanket to cover or air conditioner to cool, they say to themselves, this is the home I want to build. This is the person I want to be. That's the first thing, before they're even talking. The first thing is you want to set an example, being a living example, we call it a dogma chaya. You are a sample. You are, like when you walk on the streets and you see, uh, you go window shopping, you look and you see things in in the window, the storekeepers who are most successful, they put out the best samples, the best examples of whatever product mm. they're selling. You, every human being, 
especially if you're a teacher or, or a member of a community, a large community, and all the children and other people that are around you watch you, how you walk, how you talk, how you conduct yourself, and you have an opportunity to teach even without uh, f- verbal communication. That's the fir- that, I believe that's the first thing that's most effective in my case. You said something that struck me. Don't never judge your child. How do you not judge your child or children? Uh, <laughs> it starts much earlier than that. <laughs> It's it, in general. I it, find this constantly. Parents are often judging their children but, and getting very angry and getting very upset. You know, I made a mother once told me, "I sacrificed my whole life for this person. How can he be so ungrateful and and you know rebellious? How do you tell her not to judge the child?" Okay, so a few points uh, just to, to back up before you judge the child. It's a bit, in general being judgmental right away jumping to, to a conclusion in your own mind, having a conversation before the conversation took place, whether it's words or even in thoughts. Before you, we go down to judging the child, whether or not, how do, how do you control that? And obviously, if we do it, we're not going to change overnight, but it's the, the idea. Let's discuss the theory behind not being very um, accepting and, and not, not jumping down the child's throat. So let's back up a second. Uh, the first thing is, every child has three partners. This is the first rule. We have to drill this into our head before we stop judging anybody. Where does a child come from? So the Gemara, the Talmud, says there are three partners in every child, in every person. One is the father, the mother, and then the God who puts the soul into the, right. into the baby. So when you're looking at a child, whether it's a newborn, like I mentioned before, or a two-year-old, or a 15-year-old, in all cases, the third partner is active at all times. So when you are looking at the child and say, well, I raised you to do so-and-so, and I, I worked very hard. A lot of parents really tried. It's not like they, they made big mistakes, but they, something's wrong. The child is not following the, the, the track that we, we established. What's wrong here? So something's wrong with me. We stop blaming ourselves. So the first thing is stop blaming yourself. You did your part, whatever the part is. We're not going to go now and, and, and reckon everything that you've done since you, since you had the child. If you um, um, allow the third partner to be an active part of the relationship, of the dynamic in the family, so then there's the father, the mother, and Hashem. So then, not that you're blaming Hashem either. You remind yourself, I gave the child ABC. My wife gave the child DEF. And Hashem gives the rest. So if the child is having a certain challenge, many times it's, it's, it's the, the third partner that is involved, and we have to step back for a moment. And if we don't, we don't let the third partner do his part. Wow, so this is a fascinating insight. To be able to look at your child and say, you know, it's my child, but it's really God's child. And, and let's not, let me not get personally entangled, you're saying, and start blaming myself and blaming him and getting angry at him because he's disappointing me. It's really God's child, and let me try to be here for God's child. Right, and there's a very fine line. You can't step aside completely. There has to be a certain amount of you still there. If it's a really young child, you still need to walk the child across the street. If it's a little older child, you've got to give them independence. If you squash them when they need to be alone, when they need to work things out on their own, and you're climbing into their, into their thoughts and into everything they do, you're not allowing them to learn. So depending on the age, you have to continue to think about them even when they're on their own. But there's a certain amount of space that you lend them. And then a lot of times, a lot of the issues can be worked out. With, with constant, you have to pray for your child a lot of times. For example, again, if you want to talk about extreme ex- examples, a father might not be able to tell his son certain things at one point in his life, but he can check his mezuzah, he can check his tefillin. There are things you can do for your child without the child, without you meddling into his personal business. Your father, you're still as much concerned and you and you care but the worry is not a worry it's more i'm i i trust if i did everything i can hopefully the child will grow and and follow an example 
and even great, a greater, uh, reach a greater accomplishment than, than the parents or the grandparents might have. You'd be surprised the potential that every child might have if you give them their space. Right. So we're speaking now to Rabbi Baruch Jacobson. You could uh, you can email your questions to rabbiyyradio at gmail.com, rabbiyyradio at gmail.com, or you can call 845-354-2444, 845-354-2444. So you're basically saying, Baruch, often, you know, parents... You know, they come and they're, they're, tra- they're traumatized themselves. My kid is doing this. My kid is doing that. And the first thing you're saying is, first of all, first of all, relax. Don't get over entangled because then you'll become part of the problem rather than being part of the solution. And really understand that your child is on a journey. He has his relationship with God. And you take responsibility, but you don't take, you don't take full responsibility. I want to share with you something that I heard. I heard this, I think, from Shimon Russell, in the name of Shimon Russell, who was an expert in this field, Avi, Avi Fischer from Chaim Glantz, uh, Dr. Dr. Sorotskin, these are different activists in this. The, you know, the question was, they, they all agree that, you know, rejecting a child and severing the cords with a child is, is, is a terrible mistake. On the contrary, if your child is really rejecting everything you taught him, that's when he needs the most trust, the most love, because he's probably in the most, most pain. Uh, somebody once came to me and said, you know, their child doesn't want to wear a yarmulke in the house. Does not want to wear a yarmulke in the house. And uh, they, wa- they naturally came to the child and said, listen, do whatever you want outside of the house. In the house, there's rules. You have to wear a yarmulke. I don't care. That's it. You, want, you don't want to leave the house. And I, I brought this question to a few experts in the field. And the metaphor I heard really, it really, I have to say, it shocked me. Avi says to me, Avi Fischoff says to me, he says, I want to ask you a question. If a child who you love was shot in the chest, is laying in a river of blood, you run over to be able to help them, you call Hatzalah, and in the meantime, you want to save their life. They took a this weird, strange haircut, and they're wearing the most ridiculous type of, of shirt. Would you go over to the child and say, why did you take such a strange haircut? I said, of course not. Why not? I want to save his life. He says, don't you realize that so many of these kids, if putting on a yarmulke causes them so much pain, even though their mother and father and grandparents and siblings want it, don't you realize that there's a much deeper issue here? And instead of throwing out this child, you really have to tune into what this child is going through while explaining your other children so that they don't get turned off. How do you feel about this? Well, it's funny. Uh, the specific example you gave with the yarmulke is out of my expertise, as I mentioned earlier. It never happened to me, and I, I would not take the, uh, the the liberty of answering that question. You have to. It's a situation, Very, a special yeah. situation. You need, you need an expert. Yeah. You have to ask somebody. Obviously, on the on the spot, the parent has to use his his seichel, his, his brains. But I could give you one example, which I think will shed a lot of light in general, on our approach to the subject on a broader level. Let's, let's again, look, look from a broader level, and going back to my original theme of the three partners. I have a student from Hunter College who had a, a child who became three, a son, and he call, often called me without having had his own Jewish education. He called me to, to sort of be a, a fill-in father or grandfather. Uh, when he had questions about how to raise his newborn son. At three years old, we t- he did Opsherinish, left Payas, and gave him a yarmulke and tzitzis. The first day or two, the child accepted the yarmulke and tzitzis, but he didn't uh, relate to it. So uh, eventually he threw it off, and that was it. So that's the closest example that, that uh, I, I personally was involved with, with coaching a parent, and, and I think it'll, it'll help uh, even in a case where it's already an older child, not three years old. Right. What did I tell him to do? I said to him, where do you keep your yarmulke? Mm-hmm. He says, on my head. I said, the spear one. Let's say it falls off. Yeah. He says, I, I look for it. I find it, you know, sometimes this, that. So I said, okay, you should always have, my father taught me, I'll show him our father. My father always had a stock load of yarmulkes 
uh-huh. near his bed in, in the in the night table. Later, he got a, a different cabinet above his above his pillow. He had this little closet for yes, for I remember supplies. Always, you know, people give out yarmulkes by bar mitzvahs, weddings, and we don't know what to do with them. They end up in Seamus. My father knew what to do with them. He used each one. And he'd bring one to work, and on every desk in his office he had a yarmulke. Make sure there's a yarmulke available. Always uh-huh. have a yarmulke near your bed, in the drawer, in a special place, where everyone knows if, you, if your son says, Dad, you have a spear yarmulke, I, I lost it by baseball. You're going to scream at him? Tell him, listen, there in my bed is the yarmulke. Go take one, any color you like. And the child learns that if the, wherever the yarmulke is, of course, the best place is on the head. But the yarmulke has a special place in my life. So eventually, the, the teenager will, 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 will get, take back the yarmulke. I'm going to do this against the yarmulke in general. Is it my brother original? <laughs> and, then, and then I said to him, with the tzitzis, show him how to fold them up when he takes them off. Instead of throwing them, it becomes an issue. Every time you're going to look at tzitzis, not just when he's three, when he's 13, 15, he'll always remember the argument. Tzitzis become the enemy, chas v'shalom, or the yarmulke. But if you show him how to put them away, so then he'll take them with the same gentleness that he puts them away. So mm. it's, all about, uh, it's all about how you start from the beginning. Now, if it's already, we're already down the road, you don't have three-year-olds in the house, it, Hashem gives us the power to catch up. Even if, if, if we did not know this piece of advice, there are ways of dealing with, a, with an older child uh, similarly. I'll give you one more quick example. When my son, he, he just turned eight now, the best thing is to do what you practice what you preach. This is like you mentioned earlier, honesty and consistency. That's also critical. Child has to see consistency. Right. One day like this, one day like that. It has to be. You have to make a decision what, how you're going to conduct your life if you're going to expect that from your children. So when my eight-year-old son prepares to go to bed, and we put away the yarmulke and the tzitzis that he wears by day. Sometimes he changes into night tzitzis. I always am very careful to put them away carefully. I, I, I don't even make it an issue that he should notice or not. I know it's, it'll become a staple that mm-hmm. when you take off your tzitzis, whether it's before going to the shower or changing into pajamas, right. the, in the morning you prepare the clothing. Some people prepare the clothing before they go to sleep. It's how you treat the tzitzis. If you give it a little kiss, if you give it a little fold, the yarmulke as well, keeping it clean, keeping it in a nice place and so on. Anyway, this is just an example. Obviously, it's not just the yarmulke. It could be other things, making a bracha and someone. Right. Always, you're basically, you're basically be... saying that children ought to see from their parents a gentle and sensitive and loving relationship to their Yiddishkeit, and that will ultimately transfer to them by osmosis. 100%. Shmuel, we have, we have on, thank you, we have on the line uh, Shmuel from Muncie. Shmuel, are you here? I am here, and thank you very much for having this very important program on tonight. I would just like to add some comments. First of all, the very last things I heard about normal chinuch is very important, but I think the topic of kids at risk is deeper than that because you could raise a child with a proper chinuch, but yet if he's faced an abusive situation as in his childhood, then you have to deal with things a little bit differently as the beginning of the program you were mentioning. For example, I have personal experience in my own family. I had, Baruch Hashem, very good kids, and one child of mine who was really a masmid at age 13, unfortunately had an abusive situation when he was 13, and he just spiraled down, especially the reaction of the yeshiva, uh, which made him be more the, vic- uh, the uh, aggressor rather than the victim. So he got totally turned off after a few years, and he slid to the lowest place, and it was shocking to us. But yet, when you talk about going to experts in the field, sometimes you go to people you, you look up to, like Rabbeim. We went to everybody we could go to, and basically we were told that set the rules of the house and tell him very clearly, if you stake to the rules, we want you to stay, but this is the rules. Right. That was terrible advice. Yes. That was the advice I got from three so-called experts in Mm. Muncie. And you mentioned Avi Fischoff. Well, Avi Fischoff is a malach because he was the only person that really gave us advice that within two years... Our son, we didn't have to tell him about your yarmulke, your tzitzis. He knew all that. After two years, he turned around. 
he gave up all the drugs. He gave up all the... And, and now, Baruch Hashem, he's learning. And it's a miracle. So tell me, what was the key issue that Avi guided you? Avi explained that he... That, first of all, he said he's sick emotionally. He's not chayev and mitzvos in his condition. Uh-huh. And, and that he has emotional cancer. And what you have to do is get on the other side of the wall and be there with him because mm. right now he's being supported and, and look, given his covered from the kids on the street. And you have to get on the, his side. So in the beginning... In I other words, he's getting validation from right. drug dealers in the street rather than getting the validation from his no, mother and not father. Not drug dealers, but other kids that rest right. on the street. Right. So in the beginning, I took the, the clothing that I started to see in the house and I threw it in the garbage bag after I saw Avi I bought him clothing that I would never approve of I bought him things that you it would shock you but yet what happened was he stopped being angry at his parents mm. and we started developing a relationship so you went and you bought him garments that are alien to your belief system basically absolutely in order to make him feel embraced by you Absolutely. So that's very, very fascinating. In other words, many of us make the mistake we start preaching to these kids about Judaism. They know everything about Philin and Tzitzis. They grew up with it for 50 years. You think you have to tell them about Shabbos? They know it. They have left it. They've abandoned it. What you're saying is you've got to tell them, I'm here with you wherever you are. And one of the things I want to add is that a lot of times, and myself included, it was very embarrassing you see people that you know in the neighborhood and they see your kid wearing a hoodie mm. and he's doing this and doing right. that, hanging out in the street. It's very embarrassing. You don't want to, but you know what? You have to make a decision. Do you, do you love your kid or do you want to save your kid or do you care more about what, the, what your neighbors have to say? That's very, very important. We live in, we live in a society with a lot of social pressure and people often will, uh, will sacrifice themselves and their families to look good. And that's a big tragedy. That's and a I big want to tragedy. add another point if you have the time. There was um, somebody who my son happened to know who committed suicide. It was shocking. It was terrible. But... The parents' attitude was, we lost him when he started doing drugs. And that's so wrong. They, they so missed the boat. Mm. What should have they done? What should have they done is what Avi taught us to do. Stop telling him what to do. Stop parenting him like you know you, know, you normally parent a child. And be on his side. Let him know that not only do you accept him, but you... You you there for him and you love him and you give him wow. gifts and you and you treat him like like he is the most precious thing in the world and say we love you no matter what we're there for you. Wow! No and what. Shmuel, your son turned around. You saying, huh? Unbelievable! I want to tell you something. Uh, Avi has once shared with me, and this is this is a fact. This is Avi Fisher from Twisted Parenting. He has met two hundred over two hundred and fifty parents. All of them were advised to throw their children out of the homes, or they were heading there quickly because it was an impossible situation. It could not continue. They followed his perspective. Not one of these kids was thrown out of the home. No one left in anger. Shimer has never been called, called to deal with domestic violence because there was never any domestic violence anymore. And within a very short time, every single one of these parents testified that they can't believe they even thought of throwing their children out of their own home and severing their uh, relationship with him. So there's a lot of miracles happening, but you have to get the right advice and understand that these kids who have been traumatized 80% or 90% perhaps sexually or other forms of abuse are struggling in ways that many of us don't imagine and we have to understand that language we have to put on their glasses for once and not get stuck in our old paradigms is it painful? yes however it's far more painful to lose these precious and priceless gems. I want to tell you something, my dear friends. The most famous Jewish kid at risk was the Rambam, Maimonides, the great luminary of Torah for eternity, the greatest authority of Jewish halacha and philosophy. 
Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman in the 12th century, read the Sefer Adoris, his father said, with this kid it's a hopeless situation. His father, Reb Maimon, called him the son of a butcher in the sense that he's not capable of learning and success. And the Rambam left his house. His mother died. His father remarried. There was no success. And yet, the Rambam, the Rambam, your child at risk may be the next Rambam. You're asking a good Shiloh. do we have to prepare for Mashiach now? So why now aren't we accessing that level of unity? The answer is. Well, for example,